how can we affect the lives positively of millions of people? You know, one of the best ways to do so is with technology. I really believe once people understand how things work, they have a greater appreciation for how decisions are made. When you aren't under that kind of thumb, I really believe you can create more value and do more good. Welcome to season three of the Beyond Capital podcast. People always ask me, what is the secret sauce to marrying profit with purpose? We're back for another season to bring you the stories of successful leaders that are building and scaling purpose-driven businesses. I'm Eva Yazari, general partner of Beyond Capital Ventures. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Scoot. Together, Eva and I have built and invested in businesses worth millions. We want to show you how conscious leadership translates impact in all facets of a business and how it can show up in a company's operations, product, and culture, sometimes unexpectedly. Whether you're a leader of a company, team, household, or just yourself, we hope you walk away knowing the possibilities of impact for you and feeling inspired to take action every day. This is the Beyond Capital Podcast. Today's guest is Jacqueline Kung. Jacqueline is a healthcare expert and serial technology entrepreneur passionate about supporting patient health and experiences by developing innovation in health IT. Recently, she led the successful sale of Activated Insights, a health tech company focused on supporting senior care providers and their collection of feedback from their employees and residents to improve and build their brand from the inside out. During her tenure as CEO, Jacqueline received recognition as the CEO of uh, one of Inc. 5000's fastest growing companies, capturing 47% market share, growing profitably at 54% annually, and serving over 6,000 senior care locations. That's impressive. Jacqueline holds a doctorate in public health from Johns Hopkins, an MBA from Harvard, and a Bachelor of Arts from Harvard College. Woo! Welcome, Jacqueline. Nice to be here. Thank you. Great to have you. Before we get into your life as a tech entrepreneur, where where we'll spend a lot of time in this interview because we're both fascinated and, and can't wait to hear more, can we explore how you grew up? We've had you know several guests on the show who've grown up across many different countries and are even working in many different countries. And these experiences often end up influencing who they are. So why don't you share with us your upbringing, what it was like, and how it affected who you became? Yeah, sure thing. I am the only child of two rice farmers. My mother's from Indonesia and my father's from Vietnam. They both got sent back to China for their education where they were on the rice paddies for 10 years during the Cultural Revolution. And they were lucky enough to get out of the country when Nixon opened up. And my father got his PhD in Norway, and my mom left to get her master's there. And so we as a family ended up in Norway for a number of years before moving to, of all places, Iowa, and then Texas. And then work-wise, in my early uh, you know, career, I lived in London, Hong Kong, and Peru. So where on that journey were you like a conscious person? That is a great question. <laughs> I think, well, I think I first noticed a big difference. We moved to Norway when I was five 
And I noticed a big difference between China. At that time, you know, kids would run around with a pair of pants where you can unbuckle the hole in the back and just go to the bathroom on the street. And that is something you did not do in Norway. Right. Of course, it's really cold and it's in the, we were in the Arctic Circle part of Norway. Um, so I noticed an immediate difference then. So consciousness, I think, began then. And then um, conscientiousness about, you know, my situation, I think, was much later. It, it takes me a long time to get something. So probably later going to college did I realize how fortunate I was. Wow. I didn't realize you were, Nor- you were, you were raised partially in Norway. Are you Nor- Norwegian? No bit of Norwegian at all. We okay. were one of three Asian families in this town called Trondheim on the Arctic Circle. So, no, it was a great experience. My mother is probably the only Indonesian in the world who speaks Norwegian. Very helpful for watching the Olympics, you know. (laughs) Incredible. You studied economics, business, and public health at John Hopkins and Harvard. How do those areas intersect with what you do today? Let's see. They are very different for sure. I think the public health part is emphasis on improving lives, ideally millions at a time, right? And then when you layer business on top of that, it's using business as a catalyst for good to be improving lives. And then you overlay economics and it's distilling basically every topic down to the fundamentals, right? So growing businesses that improve lives, let's figure out how to do that in the most simple, straightforward way possible. I think that probably is how those intersect, at least in in the work that I do. But how did you get into business? Originally, I wanted to be a corporate attorney. And no offense to all corporate attorneys out there, but I don't know that many who are very happy. And so with that in mind, what else do you do with a general liberal arts education? My mother has been a small business entrepreneur, and her whole side of the family has been. And so I always knew I wanted to do entrepreneurship, which I guess falls in the line of business. So yes. So that's, I think, how I ended up in business. What does your mother do? She is now retired, but before that, she had a coin laundry and car wash in South Dallas. Before that, she had like an independent copy box, mail mart, UPS kind of store. And before that, she did fine jewelry, like diamonds and things. So she's a, a certified diamond appraiser oh my gosh. as well. So she's had a series of, and then before that, she you know worked at Target doing stocking of shelves. So she's had a, a number of things. Yeah, you, you've always talked about her as being an entrepreneurial force in your life. Talk to us about the Activated Insights as well as the other businesses that you've built. So going back to the idea of how can we affect the lives positively of millions of people, you know, one of the best ways to do so is with technology. With Activated Insights, at its core, it's a survey business, right? It's a satisfaction survey business of employees to see if your employees are happy as well as of your customers to see if your customers are happy. And I had used all sorts of vendors when I was an operator. I used to run a nonprofit retirement community in Virginia, and I had used all sorts of satisfaction tools. But of course, aside from the ice cream parties that we would throw so that we could get good scores, we really you know, looked at it once and didn't do much with it. That's one problem. The second problem, of course, is let's say you have an aging parent or loved one you have no idea where to go for help, right? And you have no idea between assisted living facility one versus assisted living facility two, what the differences are, which one is good, which one's not, unless you have a friend in the industry. So that is problem number two. 
And so with Activated Insights, what we aim to do is we made these partnerships with Great Place to Work, which is the data behind the Fortune 100 Best Places to Work list. They have all sorts of other industry lists. And then we also made a partnership with U.S. News and World Report's health team. This is the group that does uh, best hospital rankings and ratings. We used our data that we collect. So it's very proprietary and we get it out there to consumers. And at the same time, we get recognition for these providers. So they will pay us, you know, just a nominal amount to survey their employees and their customers. And then we get that data out to consumers, which helps millions of people. And then the providers then have the option to buy our SaaS subscription software to make improvements. And that then helps you know, their employees and customers as well. So did you get a lot of mad CEOs of senior care facilities who didn't like their survey results? What did you do when they would be like, wait a second? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So in these partnerships, it's upside only. So if you get a bad score, no one will know. It's just that you don't get certified as a great place to work or you don't get the recognition as a best independent living or an assisted living. And so people don't know otherwise that you did very badly. When you have the data like I do and you know my team does, then you know. And that's when we are able to provide insights or guidance calls. And the CEOs very much show up for this because they want to know, why was I bad? What are the two or three things that I can fix immediately? And they have the, their lieutenants in the room usually, and then they're firing off emails when we're having that discussion. I guess if they did the survey, they were interested enough in the first place to try to get better. Yeah, they're interested in recognition. That's often the first thing. But then once, I mean, the data doesn't lie, right? It's your people talking, your, your people being your employees or your customers. And those are important stakeholders to you. And so CEOs very often show up for these conversations. We have six personas five personas do want to improve and one does not. Fascinating. The thread I want to draw here is the thread of the conscious leader, a leader who's thinking about all stakeholders. And you already define that for activated insights. You're working not only for your paying customer, but you're making the experience better for the general population, for the customers likely in the assisted living facilities. You seem to be thinking about all of the different stakeholders. And that's, you know, the thread that we're trying to draw out on this podcast is just purpose-driven leadership. Can I go one step further and ask you, what is your purpose as an entrepreneur? Such a thoughtful question. I very much subscribe to the frameworks that Jim Collins puts together through his books. And one in particular that I really like is the flywheel. And so my personal flywheel is you treat, your you treat your employees right, and then they'll treat your customers right. And then in turn, that treats your investors right. And when your investors are happy, then the broader community also, you can treat them right. And so that's my flywheel, which is employees to customers to investors to the broader community. I think that that works great, and I agree with that 100%. I wonder when and how do you avoid employees, though, kind of taking that for granted, right? Because it is they might not see it as a flywheel. They might see it as a little bit more transactional, or a little bit more unidimensional. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Have you experienced that? So I generally am in smaller companies and I do tech startups, right? Which by definition are smaller. I think in smaller companies, what I've tried to do is provide a lot of transparency. So for instance, I really believe once people understand how things work, 
they have a greater appreciation for how decisions are made. So for instance, in a tech startup, it's not profitable for a long time. Right. And um, Don't I know it. <laughs> we were just talking about that. <laughs> yes. Cash analysis. <laughs> I but, saw some spreadsheets when I walked in on your computer. I do, yes. <laughs> yes. And I mean, the unbelievable, what unbelievably, I realized that a lot of employees didn't know what, you know, how to, you know, how profit is calculated, right? How do we make money right. as revenues? Quantity times price. And then uh, t- take out expenses from there, which is expenses of the people we hire. And that was 80% of my, you know, spreadsheet. Right. Uh, referring to what you were doing. And then 20% is made up of a bunch of other things, including travel, including different events. And so we, we were able to weave that into the values of the company. Interesting. And so I think it's much easier when it's a smaller company and it becomes harder and harder the bigger you get and the, the more layers it, uh, in communication that happens. As you say, more layers of communication, but also more layers of technology. So I, I want to <laughs> just zoom out and ask some of the trends that have played a role. Is the rapid emergence of AI affecting how you approach your work at Activated Insights? And I know you will talk about mm-hmm. you selling the company recently, which is why it's kind of framed in the past. But how had that played a role for you? How has that played a role? You know, uh, before we started the show, we were chatting about how companies are named. And we actually named Activated Insights, one, in part because the URL was available and that the name was alphabetically at the top of the alphabet for trade shows, you know, practical reasons, but also because the acronym spell, spell AI. And we knew that we were collecting millions and millions of pieces of data across a post-acute care within the healthcare realm. And we did overlay natural language processing as well as some random forest in terms of catching cheaters. Because you know, when it's a survey, people oh, cheat, yeah. right? Yeah. And if it's mm. going to be published in US News and World Report, we want the integrity as good as possible because consumers are going to use this data. So we catch cheaters. We use some of the trained models in artificial intelligence to create cheating models to detect when that's happening and how widespread it is. And then the second area was, as I mentioned, natural language processing. So when you have hundreds of thousands of seniors adding their comments or hundreds, I mean, millions uh, of employees uh, commenting as well, you can use natural language processing models to eke out what some of the trends are because it may not come through in the, say, one through five Likert scale survey questions, right? And there's a lot of nuance that comes through when we when we speak. And so you can pull that out with natural language processing. Now, just to go broader, so that's specifically how we used uh, AI techniques in Activated Insights. To pull up more broadly, a lot of people ask about how artificial intelligence might be used in senior care or caregiving. I was just reading, he's one of the godfathers of uh, neural networks, uh, Kai-Fu Lee. He's a computer scientist, Carnegie Mellon. He identifies... Uh, different industries where AI will really impact. So uh, manufacturing, creating art, music, etc. We've seen that with ChatGPT just in the last few months, of course. the One of the few industries that he says will be least disrupted by AI is caregiving itself. Because, wow. because you need human love. You can't force computers to have... I mean, it's really difficult for computers to have human love. And part a big part of caregiving is having that human connection. I don't know. I 
I would say smart guy. You know, you obviously <laughs> know <laughs> what they're talking about. But one of the things that kind of is clear, though, is that these these uh, large language models have, they're really better the more historical the information is. In other words, they're mm-hmm. not very good at, at talking about what's happening today because right. they don't have enough time to train. But like ChatGTP is trained 2021 and earlier. So mm-hmm. if you try to ask it something about 2023, it won't answer. But for seniors, you know, most of their memories, most of their life was in the past. And so in terms of like, I would say artificial nostalgia, you heard it here first, A-N. <laughs> okay, I think artificial nostalgia probably could be a, an interesting mm. kind of content opportunity for people who are sitting around without much to do and they want to kind of remember the past. But, you know, yeah, I, I, talk to me like it's 1942 could be pretty interesting. Yeah, that is, a, well, you remember Google's Super Bowl ad, right? Um, yeah. About memories. One of the most emotionally riveting things that technology does with seniors is when you let's say you put google glass or you know another kind of 3d glasses on seniors and then you take them to google maps and put in one of their old addresses for one of their one of their homes that they've lived in that brings a flood of tears and memories like nothing before and i think that there's a lot of entertainment value nostalgia value but with caregiving and and seniors one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is in caregiving, the um, it's really about wiping butts and showering. And in particular, showering is one of the areas where families need to bring in help for their father or for their mother. Right. And that is, you know, having a stranger come from behind and touch you and then have water come down on you, it's very frightening. Yeah. And that is something that is very difficult for robots, for AI, you know, any machines. To, to come. It's not like you're putting a person through a car wash. Like Maybe. The, like the leave it to Ed, though. Leave it to Ed to, to develop that. Yeah, like the Jetsons. <laughs> exactly. Well, you mentioned a couple trends there, but are there any trends, since you're the expert here, in elderly care that all of us should know? Several. A couple of the ones, I think, that are broad-based are everyone assumes that the government will take care of me or my family. And when a catastrophe happens, the F word in senior care is a fall. So let's say a fall happens in a broken hip. Yes, Medicare A covers that hospitalization and Medicare B will cover some rehab. However, after that, you're left to your own devices. And usually there's a shock that reverberates around the family that says, what? The government doesn't cover this? No, the government doesn't. So that's trend number one. Mm. The government doesn't. And trend number two is that the government, even for the little that they do cover, is running out of money. Right. And that has created all sorts of uh, negative incentives in terms of there have been 10 plus payer systems in aging and all of them have caused, you know, adverse incentives of all and moral hazard. We're hearing about it now with the banking system, but that has been happening in healthcare for a long time. I think that's trend number two. And then trend number three is that... What we talk about in the industry a lot is there aren't enough workers. Mm, Yes. And workforce is the number one, number two, and number three topic on on the minds of many of the provider CEOs. How do you think that'll change? It's also a challenge for my African healthcare companies that there are, there's a massive human capital problem. Well, if you look at what, let's take a nurse 
is doing. A lot of it is paperwork, right? right? A lot of it is trying to figure out what happened to this person, what meds are they on, what's their history. You rifle through papers. My first company in this space, I remember one nurse switched to our system. She had 140 pounds of paper in the trunk of her car that she drove around with, and she would rifle through it to find it for the client that she's visiting. That is not an efficient use of time, if I have to say so myself. So I think it's freeing up the people we do have so that they can do be top of their license. In healthcare, there's a the notion of being top of their license rather than be paper pushers. Wouldn't it be great to wave a magic wand and have like electronic medical records actually work? Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. In some parts of senior care, it's easier because the government doesn't take care of many of our senior care needs. A lot of it is private pay. And when you have that, it's easier to create medical records that work a bit better than once you have a lot of constraints. Government. Mm-hmm. So you recently, in the past couple of weeks, led the sale of Activated Insights. What did you learn from leading that exit, which was your second, correct? It was my second exit. What did I learn? I learned that although venture capital is often the end-all be-all of tech entrepreneurs, we did not use venture capital this time around, and all of the stakeholders made out better. Oh, wow. So that was the first learning. The second learning is that if you go in with some clear goals, we wanted to recapitalize at the five-year mark, and there was a certain amount we were looking for and certain type of partner. Mm -hmm. So those were the three goals, timing, amount, and the who we end up with. If you work with some good partners and advisors, you, you can get there. So we, I think, achieved all three. And then the last thing is it's a fun process. It's a fun process to, to birth something out there, to have one of our employees standing in line at Disney World, and she had her Activated Insights fleece on, and someone w- runs up to her and says, hey, I love your system. And she goes, tell me your name, tell me your name. He goes, no, no, I'm just a peon at my company. You know, I'm not an executive. I have no, no decision making. But just to birth something and have it out there in the world that one of your employees can be at Disney World to say it's a, it's a really wonderful process to know that you've made a difference out there. And why did your stakeholders make out better without VC? A big part of why is because VCs take so much. My first company, VCs ended up owning more than half the company. And of course, they need to return to their LPs. And and I understand that. But then it makes a lot less for other people. So that's one part. The other part was is that VCs, you know, I have one friend who's a, a top tier healthcare VC and his goal is to give you enough money that you come back in 18 months to ask for more. Hmm. Right. And your valuation should have doubled or tripled by then, you know, within 18 months so that you can go on to the next series. So series A to B, B to C. And so every 18 months you need more money. And what that means is that a lot of VCs will push people to spend money. And he has a markup when you need that more money. Absolutely. Which is exactly what he's looking for. Yeah, 100%. Incredible. And so when you aren't under that kind of thumb, I really believe you can create more value and do more good. I love that. As you know, I'm always rethinking VC. It's okay. It's not a loaded question. I think it's important to rethink rethink that industry for sure. Yeah, Eva, you've got to rethink your career choices. (laughs) I'm not extracted. She knows. (laughs) This is why her her firm is called Beyond Capital, right? It's beyond the VC. Beyond the VC shenanigans. (laughs) It's okay. No, it's true. There's a lot that I could say about that, but let's. But this is about Jacqueline. So. Oh, but um, I want to say to my VC friend out there, I still do love you. Of course. <laughs> That's someday, awesome. someday I might need you. Awesome. So 
I think we can get into our rapid fire and we'll return to some other questions. Let's do it. This is the fun part of the interview. I mean, everything else has been fun. Getting started, Jacqueline, what book is on your nightstand right now? I'm one of those people that read many books at the same time. So uh, for my book club, it's uh, the nightstand book is Isabella Allende's House of Spirits about strong women. It's an excellent book. And then also Clayton Christensen's How Will You Measure Your Life? as I'm a transition point right now, so okay. reading that. And then um, along those same lines, Tony Fadell has a new book out called Build. Mm-hmm. And he's the creator of, he's the one who pitched the iPod to Steve Jobs and then was lead on the iPhone and then uh, Nest co-founder. Oh, wow. That's right, interesting I've dude. heard of that. Yeah, yeah, really good book. So those are the three books. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, I have like 10 books on my nightstand, but I'm not reading any of them. Same. <laughs> well, we actually have a room in our house that we made the library because I buy so many books that I haven't read. So I have so many books I have not read in my house. I'm we aspire to be you, Jacqueline. I'm terrible. I'm the worst. Worst person. I do read The Economist every week. Yeah. I'll give myself that. But other than that, I, I don't read very that's much. Pre- that's pretty much a book right there. It, it is. is. Yeah. That's what Robin says anyway. All right, so what is your go-to beverage in the morning? Coffee, tea, or caffeine-free? Tea, Earl Grey, lots of caffeine. Okay, Earl Grey. Earl Grey. With the bergamot. With the bergamot, exactly. A new me, new me tea brand I like. Okay. Organic. Name something that's giving you hope right now. I have a two and six-year-old, and most days they give me hope. Oh. Young kids. But how old are yours again? Four and nine. Four and nine, pretty similar. I mean, just the awe that they look at the world, right? Mine are 25 and 24. Still hopeful? Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely hopeful. We were just talking about trends, but is there a trend in, in the healthcare kind of senior space that you're watching right now that we haven't talked about? I think in healthcare overall, uh, there has only now, I think there's um, more talk about happiness. Mm-hmm. So everyone's talking about treating the patient, right? And acute illnesses. And then there was a move towards talking about patient-centered care, so like the whole person. But what about happiness? And so uh, one of the things I'm working on now is around happiness. And especially, as we've seen now with the pandemic, how digital wellness overlays with happiness. Is that your new company? Uh, or are you not talking about it? I'm just starting. Stealth just starting mode. it. It's a, it's a company that exists that I think we can really make much bigger and impact more lives. Okay. I love that happiness. Do you have a favorite resource for staying up to date on current events in your industry? Healthcare is so all-encompassing, right? It's, you know, 20% or so of US GDP. So not on that. Um, I think what my reading list for news is uh, Wall Street Journal and New York Times to get both ends of the spectrum and then checking AP News to see if anything was missed in between. Okay. So you're a high-powered person. You are going for it. The caffeine helps for sure. Caffeine helps. (laughs) And it sounds like you're really switched on today. But what is the best way for you to unwind? To unwind. I love going to coffee and tea shops. Really? No way. Have you been to Cultured Cup? No, I haven't. Oh, I I need to add that to my list. It's in Addison. Oh, Oh, that sounds far. It's not that far. Okay, 20 minutes. It's near my old house. (laughs) First of all, if you're ever in Dallas, you have to go to Cultured Cup. I'll tell you about it. Okay. It's a very special experience. Are you an them. investor in Cultured Cup? <laughs> <laughs> no. Full disclosure? Okay, no. No, not at all. <laughs> what is one piece of advice you would give to your 20-year-old self? I would say get more sleep. Do you get enough sleep now? I get so much sleep now. Eight to 10 hours a night. Really? Yeah, yeah. me too. Yeah, I have I'm, to get eight. I have to get eight and a half. Really? Yes. 
What happens if you get six? Oh, I'm a wreck. How many days can you go six? One. Likewise. One? Uh-huh. And then what happens? Meltdown. <laughs> <laughs> Unhappiness in everyone around me. I can go like a week. Wow. It's impressive. It's or, a skill. Yeah. yeah. Wait, but how, when you were 20, how many all-nighters did you do? I actually was terrible at all-nighters. Like you did a lot or you did not do them? I didn't. I, I gave up my social life to be able to have a math degree because I'd have to just study all day. Oh, I was, <laughs> I was the world's worst procrastinator and I would do all-nighters because I would wait until the very last night before the paper was due and then I would be printing it out at you know, <laughs> 7.55 or whenever it was due. I love it. Love it. Yeah, I mean, I just remember doing, I didn't do that many, but those were easy. I could not even fathom doing that. So I think sleeping, uh, sleeping more would be a good one. Such a good piece of advice. All right, well, here's a good one. So what is a piece of advice you would give to a listener who may be thinking of launching their own business? If you want to be an entrepreneur, I think you want to look deep down and ask why you want to do it. Three questions. Why do you want to do it? And if it's something that you would want to do aside from making money, great. The second question is, do you like to make money? Like, do you like to figure out how to bring in money? If the answer is yes, then the, the third question is, why aren't you doing it? So then go for it. Boom. Was that the thought process that you went through? No, maybe that should be the advice to my 20-year-old self. That was not the process. And it took me much longer to have the confidence to start businesses. So I actually started you know, starting businesses later in life than I think I would have wanted. I have a more morbid version of that, which I call What's the that? deathbed test. Oh, yeah. What? <laughs> Out with that. No, No. please share. So yeah, so this is like when I'm asking myself a question like this, I just say, what will I think about this on my deathbed? What will I look back on and say, do I think I should do this or not? And Mm. basically, it really does kind of help distance yourself from the the short-term pain or the short-term pleasure. And you kind of look back and say, you know, for the when it's all said and done, there's nothing left, the last gasping moment of my life, what will this mean? Mm. Or what do I think it will mean? I'm glad this podcast meets that's why the I do deathbed the beyond, test. That's why I do the Beyond Capital podcast. Exactly. There you Passing have it. Passing the deathbed test. That's awesome. <laughs> Jacqueline, I'm so impressed by your book uh, selections. And I do want to ask you, I mean, I know you're not all the way through the book, but have you thought about how you'll measure your life? Oh, I am not through the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, too, pretty premature. You know, a lot of it around ha- the research on happiness is very much around relationships. So I think the way I'll measure my life is do the people that I love love me too. Yeah, Beautiful. the Grant and Gluick Harvard study kind of classic. Bingo. All, yep. Yeah. That's now beyond established. It's just sort of like the, it's like in the books. If you want to be happy, you have to have high quality relationships. Quantity doesn't matter too much. That is what I aspire to. And when you look into the future, what mark do you think you as an entrepreneur will leave on the world? Being a female tech entrepreneur, there aren't that many. So one of the things that I am starting to work on over the next few years is developing programs with schools to promote more women getting into tech, whether as developers or founders or both, and then doing writing and teaching around that as well. You know, I, I have to opine for one second on this, um, which, which is awesome. I also grew up totally around entrepreneurs. I've told you this. My father and all of my uncles and anybody, actually, aunt or uncle who worked, they were all entrepreneurs. And both of my grandparents who worked were entrepreneurs. And so I never knew anybody who wasn't an entrepreneur. 
growing up. And you had your mother, you know, and that role modeling. It's interesting. I think that the role modeling that's the most important, though, is for me, was realizing that when the businesses failed, family gatherings still happened. Mm. So it'd be like Thanksgiving and maybe like Uncle Ken would show up with a new Lincoln and he was having a good year and Uncle Bob showed up with the same old car. He was not having a good year. And hey, how's that new business? Oh, it didn't work. But like the the actual kind of love and family situation kind of always was there. And I think you experienced the same thing, like kind of no matter what was happening in the entrepreneur. I think fear of failure is the biggest reason why people don't start companies as they, they think somehow their life is going to like materially get worse if their business fails. And that's really not the case at all. Mm. You know, I mean, your business fails, there could be financial ramifications to it, but often you land on your feet. If your business doesn't work sure. out, you know, you pay the bills or whatever. So I, you know, that, that's what, when I hear people talk about helping other people become entrepreneurs, I would, I would suggest just trying to be a role model for as many kind of young women who can see you through those times. And I would add two things to that, uh, because I very much agree with what you say. I would add two nuances. One is if you're going to start many businesses, some will fail. So just to come expect that. Uh, and I have had a big failure. I was out trying to, you know, for a year trying to raise $50 million to start a health plan. And it was the chicken and egg between the VC and then wanting the first customer contract signed. I mean, it's a chicken and dance. And then also we didn't want to move to the VC's backyard so that he could babysit us. So expect failure. And I think every entrepreneur of many businesses have had failure. And then the second is that the research shows that women tend to be entrepreneurs. They tend to start more lifestyle businesses, call it consulting businesses or interior, nothing wrong with any of this, by the way. Uh, those are the types of businesses women tend to start. I would say we as women should push ourselves a little bit more and say, how can we grow businesses at scale and can impact more people, right? Like if you really believe in what you do, let's see if we can try to make it bigger. And then to do that is how do you make money? while doing that. And so thinking through the how to make money part, because it's not just following your passion, but it's also building a business that's sustainable around it is the second nuance that I would add to what you said. Ed. Powerful. Yeah. Extremely powerful insights. Thank you so much for being here, Jacqueline. Do you have any last words for the audience? Words of wisdom. You should try to get on the show. It's such a great experience. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we have you in person. I have to note that this is one of our rare in-person interviews. We typically do these over Zoom, but it is our absolute pleasure to have you in the studio. And such a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Once again, it's clear that conscious leaders can find a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company in a truly holistic way, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me at EA Stevens on Twitter. And you can follow me at Conscious Investor on Instagram.